0: Revelation chapter 5, just a quick intro again. Chapters 4 and 5 were in heaven. Chapter 4, which were where last week you you were centered on God on the throne. Uh, Chapter 5 is a little bit more distinctively Christian. Uh, A good Jew could have written basically chapter 4. God on the throne being worshipped. By the people of God and, and the angels and creation. Chapter 5, though, you're going to see Jesus on the throne. You're going to see heaven centered on Jesus Christ. So, obviously, this is distinctively Christian worship in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm, I'm going to contend that chapter 5 is perhaps the most important chapter in the book of Revelation. Everything thus far has flowed into chapter 5, and everything after chapter 5, such as 6 and following, flows out of chapter 5. I'm going to contend, and I'll actually read you a scholar that contends the same, I'm going to contend if you don't keep chapter 5 central as your interpretive key as your hermeneutical key, as your um, focal point, as the center and the centering point of Revelation, you will do some weird unchristian things with the book of Revelation. You will do some weird unchristian things, um, such as write 13 volumes of the Left Behind series. <laughs> Uh, if you don't keep chapter 5 central to the book of Revelation, you will end up creating a non-Christian acting God with the rest of the book of Revelation. And now I know beginning in chapter 6, some of you are going to get real excited, and you've been waiting for me to get to chapter 6, when all the um, stuff starts happening on the planet Earth. Um as God wraps up and judges history. Again, if you get so excited about chapter 6 through part of chapter 20 and forget chapter 5, you will end up interpreting um, the book of Revelation in, in almost a non-Christian way, and you'll have God acting in non-Christian ways. Um, that'll get clearer uh, by the time we finish today. But just... Remember, you need to hold on to chapter 5. Chapter 5 is keeping Jesus Christ at the center of the universe, the center of the cosmos, the center of heaven, and the center of our worship. So, I mean, it shouldn't shock you to understand you've got to keep Jesus Christ as Jesus is presented in the New Testament and here in chapter 5. You've got to keep Jesus at the center of your theology, the center of your ethics, the center of your morality, and the center of your theology, you know the, the central to the way God acts. Uh, the problem with some of the Christian community occasionally is they will even make God act in unchristian ways. And that's problematic, obviously, for the Christian community. We believe that Jesus Christ is the epitome of the center of God's self-revelation. So anytime you find yourselves painting a picture of God that's not acting in a Christ-like way, you need to have some alarms go off and realize that you might have a problematic reading of Scripture. Uh, One of the basic tenets of biblical interpretation is, um, well, there's two basic tenets I'll lift up at this point. One, let the clearer passages of Scripture interpret the less clear passages of Scripture. Scripture interpreting Scripture. That's important. Uh, From a Christian perspective, the way we do that is we make sure that Jesus Christ is our interpretive lens of everything we believe about God and humanity and ethics and living human life. If your God is not cruciform, cross-shaped, if your God is not cruciformed, if your life is not cruciformed, if your thought and ethics are not cruciformed, there's an issue. Again, this shouldn't shock any of you. As Christians, we seek to keep Jesus central to our thought and our life. Uh, It shouldn't be difficult. You're going to see in Revelation 5 that Jesus is central to the universe. He's central to cosmos. He's central to the worship of heaven. So you have to make sure you see all of life through Jesus-shaped, cruciformed lenses and that you seek to live in ways that are cruciform like Jesus. Uh, Sometimes we Christians adopt the way of seeing the world as the world around us sees the world. Sometimes we even try to adopt our purposes to the way the world seeks to live out its purposes. One of my favorite quotations that guides my church life comes from uh, Hudson Taylor. God's work done God's way never lacks God's provision. You can, sometimes Christians can seek to do God's work and they just forget they're not doing it God's way. So God doesn't make us any promises at that point. God's work done God's way never lacks God's provision. Part of the problem in history of the Christian movement is we've sought to do God's work the world's way, our way, Um, You know, Inquisition, just to throw one illustration out there. That's sort of doing God's work, but they adopted the ways of the world in doing God's work. When you start burning heretics, burning people that don't agree with the Christian faith, there's a sense you're you're doing evangelism. I mean, if I tell you, you know, embrace Christ or I'm going to burn you at the stake, I'm doing evangelism. I'm just not doing it God's way. Um, So I shouldn't, this is kind of the choir here, I shouldn't have to work hard to convince you to do God's work God's way, to make sure that you are Christ centered. Uh, Congregations need to be remembered Christ centered, because sometimes we will start doing God's work the world's way. Or maybe, you know, sometimes we think God's ways are not very effective, or efficient, or fruitful. So we'll adopt some other ways of doing God's work Um, that's problematic. So anyway, it is Revelation 5 that, that helps us. We shouldn't need much help on this topic, but it's Revelation 5 that helps us keep Jesus central to our thought and our lifestyle. Because Revelation 5 is going to point out to you that Jesus is at the center of the universe. Jesus is on the throne. That's why we can offer worship to Jesus Christ. So what I want to do with chapter 5 is let me read through it because you need to see the picture. And, And I've said that several times. The book of Revelation, you need to see the picture and not be so concerned about analyzing or dissecting. But then I also realize the way I'm teaching Revelation helps you analyze and dissect. Revelation. So I want you to see the picture that's presented in chapter 5. So let me read through it, then I'll go back and we'll talk about it. Verse 1, chapter 5. Still in heaven. All of chapter 4, you are focused on God. Notice what chapter 5 brings you. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, Sealed with seven seals. Again, I'm coming back to all this. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John says, I begin to weep loudly. Some translations get the point across by saying, I begin to weep and weep. Because no one was found to, found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders, whom you've met, said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I, John, looked. And I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice. Here comes the second song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And then he says, verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, another song, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. And it concludes, chapter 5 concludes, verse 14, And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. We can do this pretty quick because it's a pretty simple text. But make sure you pick up what's being presented here. So go back to verse 1. Then I, John, saw in the right hand, the hand of power and authority. You know, when we do the creed, we say Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, the place of power and authority. I saw in the right hand of him, God, who is seated on the throne, A scroll written within and on the back. Again, completely covered. No more room for anything else to be written. It's a scroll written completely on the front and the back. That was highly unusual for the first century. But it's here in Revelation. It's a scroll written completely on front and back. It's sealed. Now, again, an authority like a Caesar or somebody, they would seal a document. They would put hot wax on it. And they would usually use their ring or some sort of emblem. And they would make an impression in the hot wax... And that would seal it. You know, it's like putting a piece of tape over something. If somebody opens it, I will know it because the piece of tape has been broken. The seal is broken when the document is open. So here God has a scroll completely written upon and it's sealed with seven seals. And you know what seven means? If it's sealed with seven seals, how is it sealed? Perfectly or completely sealed. So you got this document this scroll there's no real real books in history at this point the christian church actually invents books uh, as we try to get all of our scrolls uh, traveling around the ancient world we invent books when we take scrolls and chop them up and put them together we make a book but this one is scrolls is what you have in human history so here's a scroll completely covered with writing both front and back you can't add anything to it what is this scroll uh, there's been a few different options in Christian tradition as to what this scroll is. Uh, i tell you a couple of them, and I'll tell you what it really is, because it's so obvious from the context. Uh, some people say it's just the Scripture. Some people say uh, that's the Book of Life. You've already heard a reference to the Book of Life. It's pretty obvious, because when this scroll is opened, chapter 6 through Chapter part of chapter 20 occurs, When this book is open, the scroll is open. So it's pretty obvious what the scroll is. It's God's eschatological plan for the universe. It's God's plan of judgment um, and victory in the universe. It's God's plan as to how God's going to wrap up history on planet Earth. It's God's plan as to how God's going to bring about the completion of the kingdom. That's what we mean by the word eschatological. Eschatological just means dealing with the end, the eschaton. So, this is the scroll that has to be opened for God's purposes finally to be worked out in human history. So, it's an important scroll that is sealed perfectly, sealed completely until the right person can be found to open it. And um, that's what they start looking for. In verse 2, the right person, the one who can open the scroll. Verse 2, and I saw a mighty angel. We're in heaven, so we're not surprised by mighty angels. I saw a mighty angel proclaim with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. Remember at the end of chapter 4, there was a song about God being worthy. If you glance back at the end chapter 4. So, here the issue again is who is worthy to open this scroll? Who has not just the ethical, moral status to open this scroll to uh, finish God's plan for creation, but who has just the theological status, the positional status to open this scroll? Well, again, I'm in a room full of Christians at this point. It shouldn't surprise you who that's going to be. Who has the status? ethically, morally, theologically, to finish God's purposes in human history. So the angel says, who is worthy? And verse 3, we're not surprised, because I'm in a room full of Christians, I'm not. we're not surprised that it says in verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Doesn't surprise us. No one is worthy in all of creation to finish God's perfect plan for creation except one person. And you're going to be introduced to the one person and the way that you're introduced to this one person needs to become central to your life and your (laughs) theology so that you don't mess Christianity up. So no one is found to to open it. Uh, So verse 4, that's where it says, where John says, I begin to weep and weep. History needs to work itself out. The reign of God needs to come. We pray probably multiple times every day, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want that day to come. We want that day when God's complete and perfect will is done here, just like it's being done right now in heaven. We pray that every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. So, John, they can't find anybody to enact. God's final purposes for creation. So John is weeping and weeping. He's weeping uh, bitterly. He's weeping loudly because no one was found to open the scroll or to look into it. Part of me wants to say, John, you should know who this is. You should know, John, who is worthy to open this scroll. But um, we'd miss some of the drama, I guess, if John knew at this point who is worthy. Look at verse 5. And then one of the elders said to me, remember you met the 24 elders last week. One of the elders, one of the people representing the people of God, said to me, said to John, weep no more. For behold, the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. Before history starts wrapping itself up, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he, and he alone, can open the scroll of the seven seals. What you to notice something here. A lot of scholars write that this is one of the most dramatic reversals in all of human literature. This is one of the most shocking phrases or portions of all human literature. Because I not you to notice what's happening here. The elder says to John, there is one worthy. He's the line of the tribe of Judah. Genesis forty nine, by the way. That's where that's coming from. That can be part of your homework. Genesis forty nine talks about how when 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 uh, at the end of Genesis they're talking about all the tribes of Israel, one of the tribes is Judah, and the scepter shall never depart. According to Genesis 49, the scepter shall never depart from the tribe of Judah. In other words, there shall always be someone ruling from the tribe of Judah. That's, that's David's tribe, by the way, if you don't remember. That's the tribe of Judah, it's David's tribe. Someone from the family, the lineage, the line of David will always be ruling. I hope you understand that is true. David, David's successor, Jesus, is ruling here and now. There is someone on the throne here and now, throne of the universe, from the line of David, from the family of Judah, the tribe of Judah, there is someone here and now ruling, seated on that throne. You know, when uh, when we're told in 2 Samuel 7, there will always be someone on the throne of David, we weren't lied to. There is someone right now on the throne of David. His name's Jesus. He's ruling the universe. He's on the throne, seated at the right hand of God on the throne. He's ruling. He knows he's referred to as the line of the tribe of Judah. That goes back. That phrase "line" goes back to Genesis 49. Um, and think about all the imagery of line: noble, strong, mighty. So um, uh, the line from the tribe of Judah will always rule, according to Genesis 49. And then all of the covenant language that comes after Genesis 49 about someone from the line of Judah ruling. Then it says the root of David. That's Isaiah 11. The root of David. Someone from the root of David is going to bring about the kingdom in Isaiah 11. The word root in Hebrew is netzer. A lot of people think that um, just to emphasize that someone from the root of David would rule, uh, netzer may be the um, origin of the word Nazareth, root of David and Nazareth, Netzer. Is going to rule. So here's here's two phrases for Jesus. We know this Jesus, this is Jesus. Nobody disagrees this is Jesus that's being referenced here. This this Jesus is line of the tribe of Judah and root of David. And we understand all that means. Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah and he's David. He will rule. He is ruling, he will rule, he his rule will grow. Think hallelujah, chorus. His rule will continue until one day all the kingdoms of this world, this comes later in the book of Revelation, there will come a day when all the kingdoms of this world, uh, and I could start naming people's kingdoms, I'll probably offend some of you, all the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom, singular, of our God and his Christ. You probably know that from the book of Revelation. You almost certainly know that from Handel's Messiah. There will come a day... When all the kingdoms of this world, there's a lot of people who think they have kingdoms in this world. But there will come a day when all the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom, singular, of our God and of his Christ. So you're being pointed to that here as the elders saying to John, and here's the great reversal, here's this remarkable piece of literature, and of course a remarkable piece of theology that should be central to your life. Here is Jesus getting ready to be pointed out, and he's being pointed out as the line of the tribe of Judah. He's being pointed out as the root of David. But notice what is seen when they, when John turns to look at the line of Judah. Um, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, this one who could open the scroll that is perfectly sealed. Verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures, (laughs) he's the only mediator between us and God, between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb. You should expect to see the word lion right there, shouldn't you? He was just pointed out as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The elder said to John, Here's the one worthy, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And John turns and sees a lamb. Start thinking about how the power, how power is envisioned by this world. And now start trying to pick up how power is being envisioned by God. Now we can get power connected to a line. I mean, we can get that. That fits our human sensibilities. That power is exercised by a line. But when he turns to see the line, he sees what? A lamb. Uh, the Moravians really have something, by the way, at this point. And I can say that around here because there's Moravians in this part of the world. I can drive a couple hours, nobody knows what a Moravian is. But around here you know what a Moravian is. You know one of the the primary motto of the Moravian church. The the, the Lamb has conquered, therefore let us follow. The Lamb has conquered, therefore let us follow. You know, it, it should offend everything we know about power to say the Lamb has conquered, therefore let us follow. The Lamb has conquered, we follow the Lamb. And again, this is John when in John's Gospel, Jesus is introduced at the beginning of John's Gospel. He's introduced as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We know that the word Lamb comes from both Exodus, the sacrifice of the Lamb. So you say Lamb, you're talking about the one who was sacrificed. The Lamb that was sacrificed that, that allowed the death angel to pass over the people of God in, in, in Egypt. So we when we say lamb, we're, we're sort of blending Exodus, we're blending uh, like the suffering servant songs in Isaiah. You know, here's the lamb, who is really the lamb, and it is as the lamb that Jesus Christ conquers. Now that should completely discombobulate any human being Except those of us who are Christian. We should get it. It is the lamb who conquers. Now we know how lions conquer. We got that. We got a lot of people running around trying to be lion-like. Sound like a lion, look like a lion, be great like a lion. You can keep postulating that out. We get how a lion conquers. And we, we, we think that's an effective, efficient, fruitful way to conquer. The way a lion would conquer. Jesus conquers as a lamb. Jesus is ruling the universe as a lamb. Jesus is seated on the throne as a lamb. You know, lamb's not very frightening. And a lamb is someone who is sacrificed. So if you're going to follow the lamb, your theology needs to be cruciformed, your life needs to be cruciformed, cross-shaped. Your spirituality needs to be cross-shaped. Now, our spirituality sometime here in the United States looks more like Arnold Schwarzenegger-shaped. And I can, put some, I'm trying not, I can put some other names in that category as to how we think power looks like, as to how we think we conquer. But at the center of the Christian faith, it is the Lamb who conquers. And the lamb conquers by being a lamb. The lamb conquers by being sacrificial. It's not accidental, at least in most of our churches. We worship on Sunday mornings around a cross, a symbol of execution. Again, that makes no sense to the world's way of doing things. Again, if we've got to do God's work God's way, Sometimes we try to do God's work the way of the world. We try to conquer the way the world conquers. Again, Inquisition and a lot of our language, a lot of our posturing, a lot of our attitudes fits the world's way of conquering. More than it fits Jesus' way of conquering. So again, he, he, looks, for he looks for the lion He looks for the line and he sees the Lamb. This shocking point is the center of the book of Revelation. Everything has been flowing into this. Everything will flow out of this. So everything that you read between chapters 6 and up into chapter 20, you need to make sure, okay, this is fascinating, discombobulating. It's unusual. I'm not sure what all going on. I'm not sure what this means. I'm not sure what this happened, what is happening here. We'll talk about all of it. But don't lose sight of who Jesus is. Jesus conquers as the Lamb. We conquer by getting a, you know, a, a big, big gun and a tank and we, you know how we conquer. That's not the way God conquers. And we have to make sure we do God's work God's way. Therefore, the Lamb has conquered. We follow the Lamb. And now what that may mean a lot of things, particularly, well, it's always meant. The first century and census meant. If you follow the way of the Lamb, guess what might happen to you? What happened to the Lamb? He died. He was sacrificed. I mean, this thing about following Jesus and living sacrificially is has got to be central to who we are. We can't say this stuff on Sunday mornings and then go out and live like Vladimir Putin. And you can fill in the blank with anybody else you want. We can't. We are the only people on planet Earth that says God's way of conquering is different than the way human beings by nature conquer. So, yeah, you should be startled at this point. You should turn and see the line, and he turns and he sees a lamb. The one on the throne is he, he is a lamb. He didn't lay aside his lambness. When he was seated on the right hand of the Father, Jesus at his core is still the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's conquering through his sacrifice. He's conquering through sacrificial lamb. We conquer, by the way. We conquer the world around us. i mean to conquering the world around us. But we got to be very careful what we mean by that. We conquer the world around us by living like Jesus. We conquer the world around us by being broken bread and spilled out wine like Jesus. We conquer the world around us. Think Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, that great Christ him. Christ emptied himself when he came to earth. He emptied himself, took the form of a servant, slave, um, even to the point of a cross, and as a result of doing it that way, he is being exalted by God. Uh, that's God's way. God's way of going up is go down. Now, the world doesn't get that. But that's God's way of doing it. You empty yourself. You take the form of a servant, even to the point of cross. And that's how you are exalted. That's Ephesians, I mean, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. In a sense, um, this is a picture of Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11. Maybe that's good homework also. To see the, 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 the path of Christ. You go up by going down. Again, the world does not get this. And the world so does not get this that most of the time the Christian community doesn't get this. You know, Jesus said the first shall be last and the last shall be first. We really sometimes live as if the first shall be first cause we can't receive what Jesus is saying. And again, that was not just the earthly Jesus living that way. Here's the Jesus on the throne of the cosmos. And he's still the lamb. So here it is. The elders saw the lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns as perfect power. Horn symbolizes power with Seven horns and seven eyes. And lest you forget, he tells you, he's already told you what the seven eyes are. They're the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That's the Holy Spirit. We're told throughout the New Testament. It is Jesus who baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. Verse 7. And he went, Jesus, the Lamb. Not Jesus as a lion. But Jesus, the Lamb. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of God, who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll... Now everything else can happen in the book of Revelation. When he has taken the scroll of the four living creatures, we talked about them last week, symbolizing all the people of God or all of creation uh, and maybe the angelic host, and the 24 elders symbolizing all the people of God fell down before the Lamb. Again, a good posture for worship, falling down before the Lamb. Again, we worship the Lamb. Now for a Jew like John or for a Jewish culture like John's culture, talk about worshiping anybody or anything it would be highly blasphemous if that thing or person is not somehow divine so here you see um uh, when they taken the scroll of all of the creation all of the people of god they fell down before the lamb and 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 they're they're doing the same thing in the worship of the lamb as we've already seen them doing the worship of god uh, each holding a harp golden bowls full of incense incense symbolizes the prayers of god the prayers of us ascending to god which is why in some traditions roman catholic high church episcopalian greek orthodox they use incense in worship incense symbolizes our prayers going to to god so here are these elders each holding a heart golden bowls full of incense the prayers of the people which are the prayers of the saints. You don't know that. He knows that. The bowls full of incense or the prayers of the saints. That's where your prayers go when you pray. And then they start singing. They start worshiping. So Jesus is the Lamb. Jesus, the Lamb, is being worshiped in the same way that uh, the one on the throne was worshiped in the last chapter uh, or at the beginning of the book of Revelation. So here's the Psalms. Well, even before we get to the song, verse 9, And they sing a new song saying, I think it's Psalm 96 that commands us to sing a new song to God for the salvation that God has wrought. So here we're singing this same new song to the Lamb. Again, you should be picking up the theology. So we're singing this new song saying, worthy. We worship God not because the feels good does. We worship God because God is worthy of our worship. See the connection of the two words. That's why we worship God is worthy of our worship. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood, blood's a big issue, the the slaying of the lamb's a big issue, you ransomed, you bought God's people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Some people I know are going to be real upset when they get to heaven, there's going to be people there not of their tribe. But notice the the range here. Every tribe, language, people, nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest or a kingdom of priest. Either way you want to do that. This goes back to Exodus. You have made them, you made us, those that belong to Jesus, a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign where? On the earth. The kingdom will come one day to this earth. God's will will be done on earth just as it's presently let be done in heaven. So there's the song of um, the four living creatures and the 24 elders worshiping Jesus. Now, lest you still haven't got the point, look who worships Jesus now. Then John says, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of, Uh, That's an infinite number. Don't try to do the math. An infinite number. These These people are saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive. And count these, power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. So how many? Seven. Perfect praise being offered to the Lamb. You only offer perfect praise to God. Perfect praise being offered to the Lamb. And then verse 13, in case you still haven't gotten the point. And I heard every creature, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. We put him who sits on the throne and the lamb together at this point. We worship God by worshiping Jesus Christ when we come to this place to worship. To him who sits on the throne and on the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Um, so you've seen the elders, you've seen the angelic host, you've seen all creation. Then you've seen the myriads upon myriads upon myriads. And now you've seen all the creation worshiping the Lamb, saying amen, which means so bid, and the elders fell down and worshiped. I, I think it's hard to miss the point here. I mean, you know, to have a Christ-centered life is the most reasonable, rational thing we could do if Jesus Christ is central to the universe and cosmos. Let me just read you a little passage. I don't tend to read much to anybody except to myself. This comes from a scholar that I really do like. His name is Michael Gorman. He has written a book, which I do recommend. It's called Reading Revelation Responsibly. Because Revelation gets read not responsibly a lot of times. Back to the Left Behind series. Anyway, in, in, let me read you. It's a great book on Revelation, but he has two great paragraphs about this section. And I not you to hear what he says, which is what I've said multiple ways up to this point today but I want you to hear what he says in case you haven't already heard me say it hear what he says when this witness Revelation 5 is neglected or forgotten trouble follows swiftly any reading of Revelation and any practice of theology more generally that forgets this central New Testament truth is theologically problematic even dangerous from its very inception yeah, you end up with a God who has a bazooka or something. And that's problematic. If you're following the Lamb, don't give God a bazooka or a tank. Or Yeah, that's problematic. That's why he says, uh, any one that forgets this witness, any reading of Revelation that forgets this central New Testament truth is theologically problematic, even dangerous, from its very inception. It is doomed, get this, it is doomed not to failure but to success. And that is its inherent defect. Yeah, humans love a god with a bazooka. Humans love a god with a tank. Human lo- humans love go- a god that acts a lot like our heroes acts. And that's why it's doomed to success. Again, I'll reference left behind series. Thirteen volumes. Some ass buying that stuff. So, um, yeah, it's doomed to success. Because human beings love it. We like We like Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I love all these people. We like and you can add to the list. We like Arnold Schwarzenegger characters better than we all than we honor the Lamb of God, who was sacrificed, who, who lives sacrificially. Anyway, that's why it's doomed to success, and that is its inherent defect. Human beings, even apparently faithful Christians, too often want an almighty deity who will rule the universe with our vision of power, preferably on our terms and with force when necessary. Such a concept of God and of sovereignty induces its an adherence to side with this kind of God in the execution. In the execution of allegedly divine might, in the quest for allegedly divine justice, understanding the reality of the Lamb as the Lord. The Lamb as the Lord. And thus of Lamb power. I like that phrase, Lamb power. We are people of Lamb power. Not of any other kind of fat power we might come up with. Um and thus of land power, terminates or should terminate all such misperceptions of divine power and justice of their erroneous human corollaries, of course, both historically and today, these misperceptions represent. Revelation is often misread as a demonstration of precisely this kind of coercive divine power in human history. Especially in its interpreting the visions of judgment. We will need to return to this issue later in the chapter. For now, however, we must stress that only when chapters four and five are read as Revelation's hermeneutical key, or interpretive key, to reality, divinity, history, and ethics, we will we be able to place the visions of judgment in proper perspective. On this, he's making the point this is how we end up with a God that's not Christ-like or Christians who aren't Christ-like. You know, if we're going to have a God who's Christ-like and Christians who are Christ-like, keep the Lamb central. On the which again, the cross upstairs should remind us of that. Keep the Lamb, the sacrificed one central. On the subject of ethics or the practices of daily life, to which we will also return to more detail, he says, one brief point must now be made. We have just seen that Lamb Christology, Christology is just your thought of Jesus. We have seen that the Lamb Christology in Revelation is inseparable from theolo- theology proper, the doctrine of God, and soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. It is also true that Lamb Christology is inseparably, is inseparable from ethics. Paradoxically, the slaughtered Lamb reveals God. And also reveals what it means to be faithful to God. It reveals how God saves humanity. And how humanity in turn can serve God. Here John the seer, the revelator, again echoes Paul. For whom the cross symbolizes both the divine means of salvation and the human expression of that salvation in daily life. As for Paul, so also for Revelation, the cross, meaning the faithful death of the slaughtered lamb, is both the source and the shape of our salvation. Um, Michael Card wrote a song that gets played occasionally around Christmas about the incarnation, the coming of Jesus as a baby. And the title of that song is something like, uh, Strange Way to Save the World. It is. You know, God coming to earth as a baby. But the whole thing about the Christian faith, God coming to earth as a baby and as to peasant parents in out-of-the-way place in Palestine that nobody wanted to visit in the first century. Um, And then he dies as an executed criminal at the hands of the, the, the political powers. Yeah, that's a very strange way. To save the world. But that's what we believe as Christians. That's why we gather around a symbol of execution every time we gather in a sanctuary with the cross. We gather around a symbol of execution. God's work has to be done God's way. We can't profess faith in God and then adopt all the ways of the world to go out and conquer the world. They have their way of conquering the world, we have our way of conquering the world. We will prevail unless we pick up their ways of conquering the world. So, go in peace. Enough of that. Important stuff. Keep reading it. Keep reading it.